HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. My guest today is Soleil Ho. She's a chef, a writer, and co-host of the Racist Sandwich podcast, a bi-weekly podcast about food, race, gender, and class based in Portland, Oregon. Most of her food writing and restaurant reviews can be found in Bitch Mag, Render, Feminist Food and Culture Quarterly, and The Heavy Table. Her chapbook of nonfiction essays, Hungry Ghosts, was published in 2016 by the Atlas Review. Welcome to the show, Soleil. Hello. Hi. Thanks Hi. for having me. Hey. Um, so you're you're calling in today all the way from Mexico, yeah? Yeah. Um, I live in Puerto Vallarta, which is on the west coast of Mexico. I've actually been there, and it's uh, it's a really beautiful place. Yeah, it's just really interesting geographically. But yeah, I uh, I have a restaurant here, and um, I make like Asian small plates, and it's really fun. Um, <laughs> especially in a city where most of the Asian food is either Chinese buffets or really bad sushi, so it's a really interesting place to be. So there was like maybe a market for you to come in and do like authentic Asian <laughs> food. I wouldn't say authentic. It's more like Asian American <laughs> food. Kind of like um, a lot of the places you'd find in LA right now, I think. 
what what took you to Mexico in the first place? I mean, besides opening a restaurant, but why did you hone in on on Puerto Vallarta? Um, I needed a break from the United States for a bit. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> that that timing makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was it motivated I mean, because I, I of the to, election, uh, or was it something that was already like set in motion before? Um, it was. I've been kind of thinking about it before, but then. Uh, my decision got really uh, clinched by current events. Yeah, so everyone who was like, I don't know, if Trump wins, I'm going to move to Canada or Mexico, you were like, I'm actually doing that. <laughs> yeah, I actually did so. <laughs> well, well, good for you. For, yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Well, so I, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast and uh, also of your writing, which is why I reached out. And I saw that you had written a piece um, a couple of weeks ago for a taste magazine called let's call it assimilation food, which is uh, a really fun title um, about your experience growing up as a Vietnamese American. And I just want to read something that you wrote um, from the piece before we kind of dive into it. So you wrote when immigrants, okay, when immigrants adapt to their new surroundings, the most immediate way this happens is through the food they make. They look around at what's available and try to make it into something they can recognize. My grandmother's culinary ingenuity was born out of having to puzzle out a way to feed her eight children every day with the varied and unfamiliar donations they received through their church. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about what your upbringing was actually like. And was it your grandparents that were refugees from Vietnam? Um, it was my grandparents and their kids, so my aunt and uncle and my mom, um, they were all about um, ranging from toddlers to high school age when they came here. Uh, so how long were they in the state? So they were pretty young when they came here. So like, tell me a little bit about what your experience was, was like growing up in that family. Did your, did your grandparents live with you? Um, it was more like um, my grandmother and grandfather, they babysat all of the grandkids for as long as I remember. So when parents go to work, like they uh, drop off the kids at the grandparents' house because for a while we we all lived like in a sort of in orbit around their house in Illinois, and so my grandmother pretty much raised me from when I was a infant to elementary school, and um, yeah, my first language was Vietnamese, for example, which is really funny, um, and yeah, I guess. She was the person who taught me a lot about just, um, her the flavor palette and sort of the way that we eat, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so what was that assimilation food like? Like, what are a couple of examples of the food that you grew up eating? Um, yeah, so I guess my favorite food to eat when I was a kid was um, rice with cold cuts on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, and the cold cuts were, like, the cheapest, like, bargain bins stuff that you could find. I think um, the brand was, uh, I always remember it as Budding, but I think it was Budding <laughs> cold cut, like turkey flavor. Turkey um, flavor. Not, turkey, <laughs> not turkey, turkey, but turkey flavor. flavor. <laughs> <laughs> and then these little packets, you know, and so you would open the packet and there's like these uh, sheets of turkey flavored meat. You would just um, rip up over a bowl of white rice and then eat it with um Maggie, which is the Vietnamese equivalent of soy sauce, mm -hmm. and that was a meal. 
I imagine Maggie can taste most, make most foods taste pretty good though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And, um, so that was a really quick meal that my grandma would make for me all the time when I was a kid. And, um, I thought that was Vietnamese food really? for a really long time. You know, oh. like those kinds of things that we ate. Like, oh yeah, like we're Vietnamese and that's the food we're eating. So it's Vietnamese food. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And then I didn't, nobody else that I talked to later, like, um, had ever eaten that before. And I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, oh, like as you got older and you started because, like, like eating at Vietnamese restaurants? Or like talking to other Vietnamese oh, okay. people who grew up, you know, in places that were more populated with Vietnamese people, like in SoCal or mm-hmm. Houston. Um, yeah, you know, they weren't as isolated and had their ingredients more readily available, you know, so it's, it was a totally different situation. And I also think, like, on the other end, like, I think a lot of people in that neighborhood would just made a sandwich with those cold cuts. But I think the thing about assimilation food is that we all have a framework when we think about what food is. And um, when we're displaced, you apply that framework to what's around you. And sometimes, you know, <laughs> you end up creating things that are entirely new because of it. Right. Yeah. But that makes sense that you had no reason to be aware that the food you were eating was different from, you know, other people's food because you didn't have any like you didn't have any other reference outside of what you knew. But like when you went to school and you had your lunches packed, like did you like the food that your your parents made for you? Was it did it lean more towards Vietnamese or more American or that like hybrid somewhere in between? (laughs) I actually. um I'm trying to think, but I think it was mainly just white bread on and um, that cocaine cold cut. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, yeah, you know. Like, did you have a sense when you went to school? Because you said you didn't grow up with a lot of other Vietnamese people in your community. Like, did you have a sense of, like, your family being different through through your food? Like, did kids make fun of you or anything like that because of the kind of food you ate? No, not really, um, which is, you know, fortunate because I know a lot of people have gone through yeah. that. Um, you know, I experienced it in a limited sense, but it, it quickly went away because um, then we moved to New York and then everyone's food was all messed up. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't such a big deal. And pretty soon I started begging for change to buy, you know, bagels and stuff at school. So that stopped being an issue pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I don't know if you, you probably, I mean, you weren't alive, obviously you you weren't born yet. Like when your family migrated to the United States, but do you have a sense of like how your family did assimilate? Like the way you talk about in your piece, like the way that people use food to kind of integrate themselves into the culture, like how did they, um, you know, cling on to either like American, you know, meatloaf or, or foods like that. And then how did, they also find ways to connect to their heritage through food. So um, one thing that I found interesting um, and I don't know, what's cool is that my family used food to bridge the gap between them and their community. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean, I I remember flipping through some photo albums that my grandmother had. It was one of my favorite things to do. And I saw a news clipping from the Freeport Gazette or something. And Freeport is where my family ended up first when they uh, got to the U.S. after the refugee camp. And um, 
the article was about them. So, you know, when they got there, it was a huge sensation. It was a small town, and, you know, that was big news. And they interviewed my grandfather, and they asked, like, you know, how, how well do you think your family's going to adjust here? Like, how, how do they like it? And he says that my kids love hamburgers, so they will be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and did that prove to be true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, everyone in my family just um, really dove into fast food and that whole culture um, just because it was such a novel thing for them mm-hmm. being from Vietnam. And it was, you know, my, my mom told me that she and her siblings would beg their parents for like a little bit of money just so they can get, you know, McDonald's once a month or something because um, it was so special. So, um, new for them. Yeah. And there's a lot of pictures of my grandpa, my grandfather just going to like church basement socials and he's got like a basket full of fried chicken and he's got super beaming. He's so excited. <laughs> so they really adopted American food when they came here. Yeah. If they could afford it. Right. So I think like for the most part, assimilation food comes from necessity and just, mm. you know, I think if you can afford to fully just dive into American food, eat lots of meat, you know, um, eat sugar and go out to eat all the time, then yeah, like, you're going to do it. But yeah. I mean, most of the dishes that I described in that piece kind of come from convenience and eating at home and, um, you know, having to deal with um, making sense of what you can afford to have. Mm-hmm. How did you make sense of it as a young person? Like, did, did you have an awareness of like some of the food was American and some of it was not? And then did you understand that like some of it came from Vietnam and that's where your family came from? Or was there never really a distinction when you were eating it? There was not as much of a distinction when I was really young because to me, uh, Vietnamese culture was just my family. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it was my family culture. Because we grew up in, well, I grew up in a place where there were, weren't that many other Vietnamese people, so it didn't feel like a broad national kind of culture to me. Like, diaspora was pretty limited to the people I was directly related to. Um, but as I got older and kind of saw, like, oh, like, there's a Vietnam, there's a country, there's a whole country that we're from, yeah. <laughs> and they have their own culture. Um, but yeah, that was really interesting. And there are just certain, I realized later, there are certain sort of um, prejudices that we held as far as food went that were not commonly held by Americans. Like what? Um, like mayonnaise-based salad was very strange for us. I think um, it's strange, too, and I, I am not Vietnamese. <laughs> I am totally with you there, but I'd love to hear your explanation of why. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I was seven, I went over to a neighbor friend's house, and she made, or sorry, her mom made a tuna salad sandwiches. And um, I never encountered that before in my entire life at that point. And I was very confused. <laughs> and I, like, I took a bite, and I just, like, started weeping. You started weeping? It was, like, <laughs> it was almost like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was almost like I took you know, a bite out of a turd all of a sudden. I was like, ah, what is this? What's in my mouth, you know? <laughs> That's really funny. 
Do you it was just like the most completely foreign texture to me. And yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I still think mayonnaise is weird. Do you, are you still turned off by it? No. Um, I've, I've grown to like it since I started making my own for like, restaurant work. I get it now. We're friends. <laughs> when did you start pursuing food professionally? Um, I guess after college. I, I, um, after college, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And so I, I started woofing. So I was um, working on an organic farm. Oh, woofing. Like, yeah, when you go abroad and learn on a farm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Worldwide like, opportunities on organic farm. Yep. And um, yeah, <laughs> I learned a lot about sort of the food system stuff and what broccoli looks like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was fascinated. And, I mean, for a long time, food was just a preoccupation for me. Um, I just loved thinking about it and cooking and, you know, home cooking and going out to eat. But I never really thought about getting a job doing that because, you know, I felt, like, too much, like, too advanced, I guess, for mm-hmm. me. But then I just started volunteering at a local restaurant in uh, Minneapolis, where I lived at the time, and then just kind of kept going from there. And now I'm a chef somehow. Yeah, and you do. I mean, you do so many things. Um, so you also mentioned fusion food in your piece, and you wrote that fusion stinks of the imperialist instinct to civilize foreign cultures and rehabilitate them into respectability, um, which is just really strong and <laughs> very visceral language. How do you differentiate? fusion food versus what you write about, like what you describe as the, the hybrid food? Um, I guess there's kind of like fusion to me doesn't really express a memory. Hmm. I mean, it might on a superficial sense, like a memory of a vacation in Bali or something, you know. Um, it's a tourist kind of memory. And assimilation food is more like childhood memory um, that for soul food that comforts us, you know, um, stuff it's, that yeah, accesses it's, something deeper than just aesthetic appreciation. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a loaded uh, word very, at like, this point. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of a loaded word, but it sort of sounds like you're talking about authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think authenticity, not in the sense that, like, this is written in stone the way ramen should be or color should be, right? Like, authenticity as far as, like, being authentic to yourself and who you are and your experience, you know, um, owning who you are. And that's what I mean when I talk about it. Um, so how did, I guess, working in food change your... Like, what was your journey like working in food? Like, how did you... Um, reacquaint yourself with like foods from your childhood or how did you get introduced to Vietnamese food like as an adult and how did that affect your identity like as a Vietnamese American? Well a lot of um, what I came to understand as like Vietnamese palate and you know my personal sort of take on food is just collaborating with people like fellow cooks or chefs um, people with 
clashing ideas. And I realized through all these conversations and, um, you know, issues that we've come up with together, my palate leaned toward certain um, flavors and combinations that were Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really think about it before then. Um, But, for example, like, I prefer food to be stinkier than average in in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I prefer, like, um, funkier sort of flavors and aromas. Um, and I didn't really realize that until I was putting a bunch of fish sauce and something and someone was like, stop. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not ready yet. You know? Yeah. Um, that sort of thing. And so that brought to me an appreciation for what I was given and how it made me realize like the palate is something that sort of developed as you grow and it is made up of what you were fed as a child and probably what your mother ate while you were inside of her and, you know, while you were um, breastfeeding. Yeah. And, you know, palate is a really interesting way to express our background and our heritage and just where we come from. I think it's a really interesting and concrete way to pay homage to, you know, um, to our families. Yeah. You've written a lot in uh, several different publications about this very common trend of fine dining restaurants kind of elevating ethnic cuisines. So, you know, mostly white chefs that are doing foods from places that they're not necessarily from and charging sort of exorbitant prices for it. And you've really taken issue with that. Um, Why do you feel so strongly about this? Like, why why have you written on this topic so so often? Well, I think it's... Um, I don't have an issue with white people doing X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. for itself. You know, they can, they can do it. Rick Bayless can do this thing. I think he's very talented and should um, cook the food that he wants to cook. I think that's brilliant and wonderful. Um, what the problem is, I guess, is the macro level of, of it all. And I always want to bring it up to the larger scale where it is white entrepreneurs who are getting more business loans for their ideas and for their businesses, their restaurants, uh, their food courts. It is sort of white chefs who are getting more coverage in the food media um, and white male chefs usually. Mm-hmm. And then um, it's just, Patrons are willing to pay more money for food made by um, a business that is coded as, like, white-centered. And so all of these things combined create fewer opportunities for entrepreneurs of color, chefs of color, um, just people who are developing businesses in neighborhoods populated by people of color. Um, They get less opportunity, and so they're more likely to be gentrified later when, you know, that food and that culture becomes trendy and people start wanting to open, you know, Filipino restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants, um, but charging more money and making more money because of it. So, I mean, it's all of those things together. It's not just the, um, you know, the simple act of making curry at home that's the problem, of course. Like, yeah. everyone should make curry. It's delicious. But it's just the idea that um, we cook in a vacuum, Mm-hmm. And that you operate a business in a vacuum is completely flawed. Yeah. Um, what was your take on, I mean, you were in Portland before you moved to Mexico. And, you know, obviously a lot of issues of cultural appropriation have been centered. There's sort of been like a, a microscope on Portland lately after um, 
the two white women who owned the burrito shop were shut down. Um, and maybe you can speak to that. And then there was like a spreadsheet of different places in Portland that called out white owned businesses that, you know, according to the people who wrote the spreadsheet were culturally appropriating the type of food they were serving. Um, what was your, what was your reaction to kind of all the controversy surrounding both, both sides of that story? Um, I think, well, Zaheer, who's the co-host of uh, the podcast that we do, and I, we're, we talked about it a lot mm-hmm. before we said anything publicly about it, because first of all, a lot of people thought that we were the ones who made the spreadsheet. I heard you guys, <laughs> really I heard you guys were too. Uh, yeah. I mean, I looked into it before you came on the show and I was like, oh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's very interesting. We were silent on it. And we didn't post it anywhere. But so funny. It's really interesting. Yeah. Especially because I think so few people are talking about food and race. Yeah. That, of course. Yeah, you guys are like the food and like race the people. Ones who have been, yeah. The ones I, who have been screaming about it for, for so long. I think that's crazy. good. You're, you're on brand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, that whole thing happens, right? And I think we basically what I said and what we kind of came out to say it was just what I said earlier when I talked about the macro scale. So um, the burrito thing and, of course, the spreadsheet thing, The there are valid complaints about both. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that the spreadsheet is data. Mm-hmm. It is really like collating data about who owns these restaurants, who owns ethnic restaurants in Portland, and pointing out the fact that gentrification and, you know, um, prejudice, like, business loan, loaning practices and prejudice dining public add up to a food scene where that is common, where that phenomenon of white folks owning businesses that serve, like, non-white food um, is a everyday life. And at the same time, they get a lot more press than, than their um, equivalents who are people of color. And so that's what's important, I think. And that's what's interesting to me. And so, like, when you start thinking about yeah. that, you can start, you, you think less about sort of the micro level, like, oh, but one of these, like, real girls, like, what were they actually thinking? Or how are they feeling? Yeah. That's not important. What's important is how do we fix this? How do we create more opportunities for people who want these opportunities to open businesses and serve food and serve the communities? How do we make life better for more people all at once? You know? Do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so what's the solution, Soleil? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the solution that I have come up with, and not just me, but, you know, yeah. my uh, partners are here, we both came up with is just our podcast. Yeah. And, we, you know, our podcast leans toward the positive. And what we try to do is showcase people of color who are like who are out there doing their thing you know sometimes being the only or the first of what they're doing but you know weathering a lot of aggression and a lot of uh, injustice because they want they have a passion for what they do in the food world and we I mean both of us really think that just bringing out those voices is so important just you know normalizing the fact that we are doing things that are important and that matter um, for us, that's the beginning of a solution, you know. Um, 
because I think like media and representation is so important because when the only image you see in the media of a farmer or of a chef is a white male, right? You're not going to pay credence to those people who don't fit that mold. You're not going to pay attention to them as much. Um, you know, uh, it's just, that's a small part of what we're doing and also just bringing awareness, having conversations that are more high level than can we make burritos, you know? <laughs> can white people eat tacos like we're trying to get people to talk more and more about macro level things and about the nuances and the complexities of being a person of color in the food industry because those are important and <laughs> that's the answer we've come up with it might not be the most effective but it's it something we reaches a lot of people yeah yeah um, I <laughs> and want... if we can affirm the humanity of a few people of color who listen to our show then i think we've done our job yeah. I think that seems like a very realistic goal. <laughs> um, we're going to take a quick break and talk for a few more minutes. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Food Without Borders. issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and my guest today is Soleil Ho. She is an author, a, a writer, hi, a chef, the co-host of Racist Sandwich Podcast. Um, she's still with me, yes? Hi. Hello. Hello. Hey. <laughs> All the way from Mexico. Um, so we just started talking about your podcast a little bit, and I want to talk about it for a couple more minutes. But uh, you guys just posted uh, a blog on your website where you did a roundtable with a couple different people, uh, several people who are all of color in the food media world to address what you called the food media's white supremacy problem. So what was the motivation behind this? And also, what was the takeaway? Well, um, we were talking about, before the break, we were talking about solutions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, this is sort of my way of starting the conversation, thinking about how do we fix this problem? Because first you have to name it, of course, like any, you know, any problem that we have, what is the problem? And we have only yet begun talking about the fact that 
a lot of food writing as a genre is deep in centering of white experience, the centering of sort of imperialist view. Uh, so when it comes to, of course, um, food and cuisines from communities of color. So I wanted to talk to people who are sort of in the trenches, writers, chefs, about this problem and um, just how they think we can begin to fix it. So, what, so I, yeah. I just contacted a bunch of uh, my friends, basically, who I've met through the podcast, with people who've been really um, excited about it and have a lot to say, and so um, they sent us their thoughts. So it feels like people are talking about it more. And I think, you know, in, in maybe no small part to your podcast. And I think in no small part to what's happened, you know, with the election. Like people are just kind of like more hypersensitive to issues that maybe we weren't talking about beforehand. Does that feel like, does it feel to you like there's progress happening or we're just kind of like talking about things that have already existed and maybe we're talking ourselves in circles? Well, um... I think, as far as the election goes, this is something that Zahir and I talked about the day after, because we had to record an episode <laughs> the day after the election, which is awful. Mm-hmm. But um, you can't mess around anymore. Right. You have to get serious. And so, um, you know, before then, I think that both he and I were very um, careful with naming, you know, just going around and saying, like, racism or white supremacy, um, this and that, and we realize that there's no time to pull the punches anymore. And so, um, you know, I think that food media has a role to play in, I don't know, I think it's just, not that we're more sensitive, but just that it's become more of a dire situation. Like, we want to fix the problem. We want to have more media and have more just publications acknowledge the existence of people of color and the experiences of people of color as valid because, God, so much of that is part of the problem that got us where we are now. And, I mean, I think for a lot of people, too, food media is an escape from politics, but that's complete, it's a complete lie. It's mm-hmm. built on the exclusion of people who are being politicized or racialized. You know what I'm saying? It's almost like a, a utopia built on um, segregation. Yeah. Um, what's your advice for <laughs> what's your advice for white people? <laughs> like, what's your advice like for someone like me, like who wants to feel like I'm doing something useful, but, um, you know, like is, is trying to be respectful and sensitive to the fact that like, I am a privileged white person, like approaching this issue. And I'm also part of the feed, the food media world. And I don't want to, um, you know, culturally appropriate anyone's cuisine, like from a food media perspective, like what's what's the best way to approach this in a way that you think can be like useful and helpful? Um, well, number one, call your senators. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang up and call your senator. <laughs> for white people everywhere in the U.S. <laughs> um, please call your senators about the matter, about the issues that matter to you. But besides that, um, I would say when you're looking at, as a food media person, right, when you're looking for sources or you're looking for a chef to interview for a piece that you're doing, just kind of look at your list 
and take note of the demographics of that list. Mm-hmm. So, for example, and I've seen this a lot lately, is if you're writing a piece about Filipino food, Filipino cuisine, um, are the only people you're talking to white? And you'd be surprised. There are a lot of stories where that is the case that I've read. And um, maybe take a minute to think, like, oh, maybe I should ask a Filipino person about Filipino food. I think that would be really appropriate, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> I would a, think so. Yeah. So on a basic level, as a writer, as a journalist, think about your sources. Think about the voices that you are bringing forward as experts. Like, April Bloomfield is not an expert on Filipino food. Mm. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there was a recent piece, and I think in time, where he was... Like, that was the framing. Like, really? Filipino oh. food is going to be the next big thing. And it's like, who's asking her? Why? Oh. Like, I'm sure she has a great she has an opinion, of course, but why just her? Yeah. You know? Um, so start asking why and start asking um, if there are other people you can talk to about this. Um, and I think if you're trying to avoid cultural appropriation, I think <laughs> the number one thing is have friends of color. Um, if you're going to make you know, curry, maybe ask them, like, or, you know, ask a friend who's made it before who, who has family recipes that, you know, include that. And just be like, hey, um, can you come over and I can, like, cook this for you and we can, you know, chill and hang out and I can ask you about your day and your life, like, you know? Yeah. Well, that's good advice. Is, you know, people <laughs> make a big deal of, like, you know, cultural appropriation versus cultural exchange. Like, yeah. what's there and what's the line? And I think exchange is an equal relationship where you affirm the humanity of the other person and you affirm the fact that this culture that this food came from or this product came from matters. Yeah. And, you know, um, there's respect. That's all it is. Yeah. That, that makes sense for sure. Um, Soleil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Tell us where we can find Racist Sandwich Podcast. Um, so we're on Stitcher and iTunes and I believe some other ones. I don't know. I'm really bad at this. <laughs> but we have a website, racesandwich.com, and we also are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Race and Food. Um, yeah. Other than that, we are just out there. You'll find us. Yeah, it's it's really such a great show. Like I have to kind of like fan out for a second because I just I really look forward to it and. Um, I'm so glad it exists. And where can we follow your writing in addition to the podcast? Oh, man. Um, so I'm on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And um, I, don't, I don't have a website yet. I'm, I'm pretty uh, <laughs> on the down low. It's okay. But Everyone out there can Google. Yeah. yeah. And what about Luckily your... My name isn't like, you know... <laughs> My name's not, like, uh, Jenny Jones. You'll, you'll be able to find me. <laughs> right. And what about your restaurant? It, for for those out there listening in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, or going on vacation soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, my restaurant is in Puerto Vallarta, and it's called Bonito Kitchen. And I think we're, on, we're online at bonitokitchen.com. And, uh, yeah, we're open. That's we're awesome. about to open in uh, an hour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll see you then. I, maybe I'll see you in an hour. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Thanks, Soleil. Thank you so Very much boy. for being the guest. <laughs> we'll see Thanks. if I can do that fast. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening to Food Without Borders. Catch us next week. Same time, same place. HeritageRadioNetwork.org at 5 p.m.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.